You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Go over to uh, Mark chapter uh, 7, and we'll kind of get going here. Um, I have a theory that, like, in the psychological uh, journal, there is an official category for something called uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and obviously I want to due respect to people that, you know, work through that psychological issue. Uh, Not all of us categorize into that book as OCD, but I feel like all of us uh, might not have a complete status of OCD, but all of us are a little bit OCD. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like a little bit fixated on small little things and details and just like go crazy if it doesn't work out the way that you want them to. I'm not OCD about a lot of things, but I am OCD about my iPhone. Uh, I don't know what it is about me, but ever since I got one, I was like, look, Steve Jobs back then, Tim Cook now, gets paid a lot of money to design some pretty cool looking phones, so why am I messing with the, with, the, with the settings? So there's a little thing that resets, and every probably week or so I reset it to the original settings because I want to hear what Tim Cook made it to sound like when I open up my phone. It's just a weird thing, and I want all my apps in the right category. I'm not OCD about a lot of things, but I am OCD about that. I also uh, am OCD about my, uh, about my clothing purchases. Um, I, I have this weird thing, like if I get the wrong size or wrong color, I'll have buyer's remorse, and every time somebody walks by with the gray Patagonia sweatshirt rather than the blue Patagonia sweatshirt. I have like remorse and regret. So when I get gifts and stuff, I'll keep tags on them for longer than I probably should and get really worried that like I got the wrong size, wrong color. And I'm also very OCD about my desk. Uh, I don't have a desk as much anymore, but back when I was a teacher, all the pencils had a little spot and all the Scantrons had a little spot and I had a key and it locked and and that was my one little Zen garden because you can't control everything, but you can control what you can control, right? And so I remember um, going to a movie about OCD back in the day called What About Bob with, with uh, Bill Murray. Uh, and you guys remember when you're eight, this guy has like a, a fishbowl around his neck and he's like just talking to himself on elevators and kind of hyperventilating and he confesses to the therapist, you know, sometimes I worry I'm going to go somewhere and I'm not going to have a bathroom close enough and my bladder's going to explode. You know, just like all of these anxious, you know, thoughts that he shared. And, and so as an eight-year-old, I wasn't worried about anything except for the five minutes in front of me. And I asked my mom, I was like, you know, what is it that, you know, Bob had? Why, why is he like that? And, and she had a great answer. My mom had a great answer. Mamas will explain it to kids the way you need to understand. She said, OCD is this thing where because you can't control the things you want to control, you control the things that you can control. And it's a vain attempt to have some level of control over your environment. And there's lots of things you can't control. So you take this one little light switch or your hand washing or your iPhone or the little things that you fixate on because it gives you some sense of solace that at least I can control this thing. And it's not as useful as obviously humans want to make it out to be because how many of you guys know that ironically the things that mean the most are the things you can control the most. Uh, or the least, excuse me. The things that mean the most are things you can control the least. Like people and relationships. I mean, that's what we're all needing. And we want to have order and direction and continuity. And so you can't flip on a light switch enough times to make our dads love us or forgive us or us forgive them or so forth. And so it's really a vain attempt to control the things you can control because really your heart is crying out. You wish you can control the things that you can't. You can't control sometimes even your own inner thoughts. (laughs) You guys are realizing you can't even control yourself. That's a gift of the spirit. Self-control. You can't control your, your, um, the cards you were dealt chemically. You can't control sometimes your thoughts. Sometimes you can't control your racing mind. You can't control your heart. Like, you wish you could control it, and so sometimes you could have to control the outside, like washing your hands, because really, you wish you were clean on the inside, and you can't, can't control that. And one of the worst slash best scenarios and best, best news of all time is really, you know, you can't control God. And 
And this is the best news of all time, right? That, that, that God uh, has not been arm twisted, but has decided and chosen to love all people. He's loved all, all humanity, even the, the ones that, that are lost and far from him and broken. And he's chosen to love us and inside of Christ. Grace is, is not a couch. It's, it's his grip on your life, that his promise is secure. And that even though we don't choose him all the time, he chooses us. And he decides inside of covenant, not our control, to continue to love us. And, uh, and so we're running into chapter 7 to this uh, uh, really infamous, uh, hyper-controlling religious group that we kind of said goodbye to in chapter 2, way back a couple months ago, called the Pharisees, who are super nitpicky and controlling, you know, about a lot of things, and they tend to fixate on stuff. And, and you know, you can tell a lot about a person by uh, what they ask when they meet God face-to-face, like, where did my keys go, or do God, dogs go to heaven, or something like that. Like, even these are great questions to ask. Obviously, the question we'd all want to ask is, why is suffering happening? You know, why is bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people and so forth? You know, you might ask things like, you know, how, how, do, I, how do I just surrender? How do I let go? And, 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 and really, what we ought to all be asking, I guess, if we ever see Jesus face to face is, can you save my soul? Like, sometimes I don't believe it, but I feel like you're calling me to offer my life and, and to be saved. And so there's plenty of great questions to ask God if you ever meet him face to face, but uh, the one that the Pharisees decide to bring up on this whatever Tuesday afternoon is how many times should I wash my hands? <laughs> you can tell a lot about a person by the questions that they ask, and the question that they decide to ask out of all these big, lofty, or mysterious questions, they decide to ask Jesus, how should I wash my hands? <laughs> and so they're coming from a really a long line, you know, of, uh, of, patri- of patriarchy and, and the priesthood and so forth. The Levitical law did have a lot to do with washing hands. It was both about sin and about dirt, and so the priests would want to be both physically clean, right, and spiritually clean to enter into the, the temple and so forth. But those, those original commands of God, uh, how many of you guys have been in religious circles where the original commands of God can quickly turn into just the rules of man? And so they created a fence like you would do at a Grand Canyon, so you don't want your kids running off, so you put the fence and the rules way, way far away, so at least you don't slippery slide off the side of a cliff. And then those fences just turn into traditions. I don't even know why I do what I do. My grandma did it. So I just do what everybody else does, and we confuse consensus with the prophecy in that way. That's a pretty dangerous thing. And so, um, and so I just want everybody to just take a deep breath and relax. This is one of those sermons that has nothing to do with this room. It's just really more of a history lesson to talk about, you know, Pharisees, these idiots, you know, that they just had really long robes and long beards, and we're not idiots like this. Uh, we do not get into trivial little matters of minor accord and, and fixate on small little religious things while missing big things, you know, like loving your neighbor and you know, doing justice to the poor and shed it, spreading the gospel. We don't fixate on small little religious sects and, and create subcultures within our clique. So we'll all just relax and laugh at people that used to do this kind of stuff. Uh, we don't fixate and create rules and point the finger to justify why we should be saved and not somebody else on small little things, you know, like dating and courting and affection and PDA before marriage or betting or gambling or playing cards or yoga and meditation. I've never seen anybody in a fight on social media. There are two Christians getting a fight about any of this stuff like, Smoking a pipe or aliens or smartphones or Snapchat. Halloween, settled. We got it figured out. We love Jesus more than our opinions on that or pyramid schemes or modesty or wearing shoes in church or wearing hats in church or tattoos or sarcasm or cussing or speaking in tongues. We never get caught in the small, little, minor details that get in the way of the great commandment and the great commission. We never get hung up on predestination or waste time, you know, talking about the answer to that while there's poor people all around us. Uh, Jesus' return, age of earth, six days, uh, Calvinism, church and state, corporate worship, Catholicism, Rob Bell, Netflix, Hulu, nice stuff. Should I have nice stuff? Should I not have nice stuff? You know, I mean, we could be talking about honesty, sexual ethics, but no, 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 no. 
We'd better be talking about dancing and nudity and art on Friday or Saturday church. Democratic, Republican, Libertarian, Green, parenting, spanking. Mental health, medication, diets, homeschool, public school, Christian school, Harry Potter, death penalty, immigration, cremation, hunting, tithing, membership, debt, or birth control. Now, if I haven't offended everyone in this room, if you're not offended, come find me. I want to follow you uh, as my rabbi, right? Because I feel like I stepped, hopefully, on, on everybody's toes. We are masters at focusing on the minor while missing the major. We are masters at, at, the, at the little minor things because it's when we can fixate on the small things we think we can control. We get to at least have a little reprieve over the scary things we can't control and the things we're actually called to. And so Jesus squares them up and, like he always does, changes the subject because he'd rather talk about something that really matters than talk about the thing that you think that matters in the kingdom of heaven. And he will change the subject even if it offends us because ultimately they don't need cleaner hands. They need a clean heart. They're bringing up these little, small, little fixated things that they can control because they've made themselves to be their, their own God. And at the end of the day, how many rules you have, two or three, 613 or more Talmud rules or whatever, there's no amount of rules that can clean the human heart. You'd need Christ for that. And so he brings up the conversation that they really need to have is not about their hands, and it is about their heart. And so the good news today, you know, if you're just new here, if you're a believer, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, like, he's not actually after your money. He's not actually, actually after necessarily how many times you read the Bible. He's not after if you serve in church. He's the good news and the relief, but he is after your heart. He says in the scriptures so many times, I did not demand sacrifice. I asked for a contrite heart. I asked for your heart. And the best thing that he's ever given you and the best thing that he wants to give you if you're not in Christ today is a new heart. It's the heart of Jesus. The reason why it's hard, the reason why it's taking longer than you want, is because better, it's better than you know. And he's settling for no other great work than this than to give us the heart of Jesus. That our hearts are, are too eternal, too significant in the sway of the spiritual realm to be stuck on small little issues. He wants to expand them for the nations. He wants to put, the heart, put a heart for the nations in us. The reason why it's hard today and the reason why it's easy to call a Christian a hypocrite is because a Christian actually cares. And they're, they're actually resisting temptation and feeling the resistance of temptation up against them because there's a surgery going on inside of a Christian heart to make their heart not for the rules but for the nations. Not for denominations, but for their enemies. Not for their subcultures, but for Jesus. The best gift that Jesus ever gave anyone was his heart in the, in the, in the chest of a Christian. So Jesus... Uh, has three little movements in his conversation with the Pharisees today and with us. First, the conflict, but then deeper than that, he wants to get into the real conversation, not just the topical conflict. And underneath that, he wants to invite, invite not to condemn, but to, but to heal and invite us to have um, him make our hearts clean. So chapter 7, verse 1 says that the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They cornered him and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. We had a um, friend who had a grandmother one time where they asked the grandmother why she puts paper towels over the top of the sweet tea. And the grandma just stared at her. She had no idea why. She had just been doing it because her mom did it, and her mom did it, and mom's mom did it. And so they had to look it up. They had to, like, get on the Internet and ask little sisters and stuff, and they finally got to the answer. You know what the answer was? Is that before there was air conditioning, they would have to have tea in the outside windows open and stuff, and there was flies everywhere. But here she is. 40 years later with an HVAC system, going great, <laughs> with a paper towel for no reason at all except for tradition. There's a blindness that goes on with the fishbowl we swim in, the things we do just because we do them. We've never asked why we do them. We just do them because it would be weird if we didn't do them. 
And we all just decided to do it all at once, you know, and built a culture around that, I suppose. And so Mark slows it down. It's a very fast-paced book so far, but he slows it down because he knows that Gentiles are reading it. So he kind of explains. So this is kind of weird, but I'll just kind of explain it if you can understand. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands to ceremonial washing. Like in the beginning, the Levitical code was about sin first and dirt second. But the major got swapped for the minor, and so no longer is it really even about sin at all. It's just about hygiene. It's becoming a ceremonial thing that I just do because my grandma did it. Holding on to the tradition of the elders, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, wash their hands, and they observe many traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So, like, how long would it be, take you to get nervous in your seat and just leave this church if I closed down this sermon and just started praying with my eyes open, just staring at you? <laughs> Father, I pray, and I start, like, naming sins that, like, messed you up or something that I... Father, I just thank you for this church. And Lord, I pray that you would just lead a revival in this place and uh, combust prayer and spiritual renewal in this place. And I just never close my eyes. You'd be like, I'm out of here, dude. Like, I can't handle this. Where in the Bible, where's the chapter and verse that says we're supposed to close our eyes to pray? It's not there. But yet, all the Protestant churches and Catholic churches that are in this neighborhood, I guarantee you when we pray, what's the first thing we're doing? Bowing our heads, closing our eyes, you know? Because of, uh, you know, Pastor First John, or what do you know, like whatever pastor that we that we that we were brought up with, right? Or how long would it take you to leave if I said, hey, we're doing communion today, and over here, if you're under 18, you can go over here to the juice side, and over here, now some of you guys would come back to the church, we have a plus 18 section where we're actually drinking wine. Jesus drank, drank wine at the first and all, you know, at, at his at his communion table. The Bible did not say that he turned water into grape juice, like he turned it into wine. So we're practical about that. We, won't, we read 1 Corinthians 14 in order of worship. We don't want people, you know, to stumble over alcohol, and there's people of all different walks. And we do have a reason why we do juice, juice at this church. I'm just saying, do we ask why? Jesus, I think, would preach some sermons that people would be like, are you, did you just give a little devotional? Like, he would lead a sermon sometimes for 10 minutes. Some of you guys would be like, this is great. I'm glad that he's preaching on Oliver today. But we have a culture about sermons, and when we make a decision about that culture, sometimes we don't ask why we do it. Why is the sermon 45 minutes long or whatever? Why is the sermon 50 minutes long or whatever? Sometimes we're blind to our own traditions. So verse 5 says, So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't you, your disciples, live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with the defiled hands? Now, some of you guys know this all too well on a personal level. The most important three letters of the word culture is U, R, and E. Because if you have culture minus U, R, and E, you just have a cult. And there's a certain... I've seen it before, even in modern churches where there's a branding handbook and we got to say these words, all the people, all at once, all have to say these one words and you can't say the other word and you got to call it this type of thing and that type of thing. We don't say platform, we say stage. And it's just a fine line between unity and control, right? And, and so, so culture is beautiful. Like I love Chinese food and Chinese food, whatever it is you think of when you think of Thanksgiving, that's how I think of when I smell noodles. I love Chinese food. I'm never going to stop doing that. I love uh, South American culture. Like I, when I go, when I went to Guatemala last March for a mission trip, you just like feel your stress rate go down when you get off the plane. Everything just moves slower. It's awesome. And I, I love American culture. I do. I love, um, I love the idea of um, believing that one person can make a change. I believe um, in, in the idea of freedom and the idea of, you know, self-determination, all these types of things. These are wonderful ways, right? And so culture is beautiful or it's ugly based on its location um, uh, proximal to Christ. 
Culture is beautiful if it's under Christ and completely ugly if it goes over it because culture without Christ cuts me off from Jesus and it cuts other people off from Jesus. I remember listening to a podcast that, you know, they say that in the next 50 years that the church is, is, is going to be minority Caucasian. It's going to be mixed or, or Latin American, Asian. This is church in America, right? And it's going to have to become more multicultural than ever. And I remember listening to this podcast about this Latino girl who was going to the youth group, right? And it, it wasn't that they told her she couldn't come. Like, they didn't say people of other races are not welcome here. But what she did talk about is everybody did their hair a certain way. And if you didn't do your hair that way, it just wasn't pretty. There was a certain water bottle that all the kids have. And if you don't have that water bottle, you're just not in. We're not aware of these type of things, but the church is always ready to pray for unity. But the practice of unity is to put Christ over culture. The real reason why churches will have this unity, even if you preach about unity, is because if you preach unity... But practice culture over Christ, you can't have diversity because the culture has now become a fence above our Christ. So if we really want unity, then the cost is our culture, our subcultures that are not Christ. If, if he wants us to pray with our eyes open, we should have our eyes open. Our culture does not come before for Christ. And so if we've missed that, if we've, if we've drifted from that, maybe we'll come back just very simple. Kingdom culture 101. This is kingdom culture, which is greater than every other culture. This is, this is I mean, let's all you know, eat, eat rice and <laughs> do lots of fun stuff according to the cultures that we're coming from. But understand that all cultures come under kingdom culture. And the first rule of kingdom culture is that everybody's a sinner. No matter what culture you have, whether it's a church subculture or ethnic culture, there is no culture that keeps people immune from divorce. There's no culture that has beat it. There's no culture that has beaten jealousy. There's no culture that's beaten arrogance or pride. There's no culture that is greater than any of those things. There's no culture that can save us. Only Christ can save us. So we start off there. Right? We, we, we like culture and enjoy it, but we worship Christ. Secondly, everyone needs Jesus. That all the cultures are really just vague recollections of the highest celebration of the highest flag in culture, which is, which is Jesus. That when cultures come to the end of themselves, and they will, that Jesus meets them right where they are with everything that they need. Every culture, every tongue, every tribe, every knee, that the end of themselves will meet Jesus, and they will meet grace face to face in him. And they will find life and life everlasting. Everybody is a sinner and everyone needs Jesus. And lastly, everyone, no matter how rich you are, poor you are, sophisticated or smart, he'll use foolish things or smart things or short things or tall things, but everyone only has fruit by the Holy Spirit. That everyone, just by faith, according to faith, not by work, can have the gifts of the Spirit, patience, kindness, self-control, have the works of the Spirit, have the, have the fruits of the Spirit, leadership, miracles, healing, generosity, Kindness, all these things. This is only by the Spirit. This is the kingdom culture that doesn't put any culture above it. It will be superior overall. So Jesus moves out of the conflict and into the conversation, the deeper conversation, the ones that, the, the, the dialogue that the Pharisees really should be having. Verse 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about all y'all that you're hypocrites, as it's written. It's being a culture. All y'all. Um, you know, so I've heard, you know, basically, if you, if you, if you talked about it in school and character development, a hypocrite is somebody that says something and does another, right? Says something and does another. I think that really the Bible, if you pay attention to the picture in Sermon on the Mount in this passage, is even deeper than that. It's not just saying something and doing another. It's actually saying something and being something different than you say that you are. Not just saying, because saying something different from what you do is a lie, right? Uh, saying something different than who you are is acting. It's being, it's being a hypocrite. And so here's the, the troubling part uh, about the way that Jesus presents hypocrisy is that there is a category, obviously, of sin is doing the wrong thing. Knowing it's wrong and doing it. Anybody that knows what sin and does it, 
is a sinner, right? Is sins. But then there's this other category. How many of you guys know there's a lot of people that think they're doing the right thing, but they're actually doing the wrong thing? Because they recreate God in their own image, and they redefine truth on their own terms, and they might actually think that they're worshiping God, but they're not doing what he said. And so I can't, I can't make up what God has defined as his identity, and I certainly can't redefine what he says is worship. This is what he says. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And look at what it says in verse 7. Verse 7 says that you can actually worship the right God in the wrong way. They worship me in vain, not the right way. And so if I have a basketball team and I tell the kid, hey, uh, I believe in you, and next year I want you to come back and dunk on a 10-foot rim, I mean, you guys know I'm not happy if he comes back with a little tykes thing and says, look, coach, I can dunk. Like, you can't just redefine it and say, oh, by loving my neighbor and making disciples, do you mean just preach sermons? I got it covered. You can't just redefine what he's asking for. He's not asking for more sacrifice or pain or, 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 uh, or religious duties. He's asking for our heart. And that's, that's the only thing that's been called upon, and this is what they're, they're missing. Is they honor with their lips, but not with their heart. You have, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to only human traditions. And then he gives them an example. He says, you know, for example, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to, to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares um, what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. So in tax season, we know exactly what Corbin is, right? Corbin is what you, what you claim on your taxes is giving towards some uh, generous deed so you don't have to pay your taxes. This is exactly what the Jews were doing. They, they had this kind of category for religious funds where by the temple they would swear on this segment of my income to say this is all for neighbors and for uh, the gospel and, or, you know, for, for spiritual things. And then therefore, because I give this thing to God, I don't have to give it to my neighbor. I don't have to give it to my mother. I don't have to give it to my father. And so, so they, they have found a way somehow to love God Without, to make two commandments of really what, what's the, the greatest command, which is to love God by loving neighbor and love neighbor by loving God. And so he says, therefore you nullify the word of God by your tradition that has been handed on. You do, you do lots of stuff like that. In other words, isn't it crazy how human beings have a just profound propensity and, and capacity to make things that should be about God about themselves? Like, like if the order of the great commandment is to first love God and then to love neighbor and love myself last, somehow we, somehow Christians are acrobatic in our ways to figure out how to just love me and then love me and then love me, to, to, to do missions about me, to do groups about me, to do preaching about me. Like there's just an uncanny ability for people to do spiritual things for all the wrong reasons. And that's exactly, I think, what the, the Corbin example Jesus is getting at is that it's not God and others and me, it's me, me, and me. And so I think that the carryover, there's a chronological snobbery, right, that we look back on these people and we're like, they're so dumb. Like, the carryover from then until 2024 is people, this is the idea, is that if you're a Pharisee or not, it's not a denomination, it's a condition of the heart. And people are obsessed with cleaning the outside while, while they are neglecting the inside. That people, whether they're then and now, are obsessed with image. How do I look versus who am I? And so there was a... Um, uh, a lady named Benny Johnson who's part of Bethel Church passed away from cancer a few years back and I remember streaming onto her uh, funeral service and um, as they took the mic they gave eulogies of all the secret stuff that Benny had done that nobody ever knew about I mean 
There's categories of even some of you guys know of preachers, like after they die, you figure out the skeletons in their closet. How much more powerful is it that instead of coming to a funeral and being disheartened by something you thought was great in public is actually broken in private, that when you go to somebody's funeral, you actually find out good works that nobody ever knew that they were hidden good works because they, they didn't boast in their good works, they hid them. And so this lady has all these people coming up to her, just money that she would just give, just people that would come to church and she would just be giving money out of her pocketbook for no reason, never resisted a generous impulse, and people that she would pray for that nobody ever heard of, even her husband didn't even know of the people that she prayed for and saw healing for. She would just keep it a secret. She would just live her life almost like before God and make it her agenda and ambition to live a quiet life before Jesus. And so there's something, right, that it's like spiritually there's like a law almost that you can feel that if you were to have a quiet time with the Lord and you were to read your scripture and hear his voice, it would be enough for us. It's, it's all that the human heart can stand and all that we would want. But there's something profoundly different that changes if you were to, and nothing against this, but if you were to take a picture of that and post it on Instagram, something would deteriorate about it spiritually. Something would, would infect the purity of it. The minute it even goes to one person, let alone 800 people, the power of it diminishes out of, once it's moved out of the private. You know, and, and so same thing, if you did, you did something for a stranger, you know, like you would feel, I believe, the kingdom of God so near in that place. Even if you weren't a Christian, I think people could feel the kingdom of God near. You know, when you go to low places, you're going to feel the Holy Spirit. And the, and the decision to tell your spouse or not, there's a barrier right there of power that I think diminishes as it goes public versus if it would be kept, kept a secret, go private. So don't look at the screen, okay, if you don't want to be convicted, right? But this is the Francis Chan quote, not coming from me. I, love, I thought this quote was great. He says, almost nobody does anything secret anymore. Like, we're more Pharisees than the Pharisees because we are more public than ever. There's more people that have your image in their mind than ever before in human history. And the idea is, is that nothing is hidden anymore except, unfortunately, a lot of times our sin. And he says, here's, here's what humans will often do, Pharisee or not, is we will hide our sin and post our good works. And there's a lot of power lost in that. He said, the Bible says to do the exact opposite. The Bible says we should confess our sins one to another and hide our righteous deeds. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that if, if, if there's something weak in us, something that God did that we couldn't do on our own, something that he forgave us for, if there's anything public we should share about, that's the first thing that should be on our lips. If there's anything that we want to store away as treasure, you know, in the field and actually see change, like most of the spiritual and even political change in our life will probably happen by people we don't know. And if you really want power, then don't, post the good things, hide the bad things, celebrate what God has done in his great love for you, even in your weakness, and hide the righteous deeds because that's where the change actually happens. That's where the power actually lives. So he moves it down into the invitation of, of, of a clean heart. And here's what he says in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowds to him and he said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. This is the most unpopular hot take, political, spiritual hot take you could hear, I think, in any, any, any room that anyone ever tell you, is that, like, politics are not the problem. I'm the problem. Everything in our human existence wants to project and blame and move the realm of responsibility and the, 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 the place of change to somebody else. And he says, that's not where change doesn't happen out there. It happens in here. That crisis, the crisis that we're in, like character is not actually created in crisis, is revealed. 
the stuff that's coming out of me when I'm pressed and when I'm struggling and when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired, it didn't just manifest out of the air because of the situation. It was always there. It's just getting squeezed out for the first time. If anything, I could be healed and know what God forgave me of. That stuff didn't just manifest. And here's probably the most unpopular thing. In the realm of emotional health and, and all the things that we are, you know, work through in our, in our day-to-day life, like sin did not originate with trauma. Like the things that people do to me, David did not say because the things that my mom did to me, I'm a sinner. I was born a sinner in my mother's womb. And I'm saying trauma is connected to all sorts of pain and understanding about your emotional health. But if you see trauma as the source of sin, you're not agreeing with Jesus. The source of the evil in this world comes right here. It's the line of good and evil flows through the center of every human heart. And the only way into the kingdom of light is through the blood of Jesus. Only through the power and the death and burial resurrection of Jesus. It's not from out there. It is from in here. Verse 17, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomachs, and then out of their body. In the Greek, it's into the toilet. (laughs) He went on, what comes out of a person, that's what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil comes. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from the inside of a person, not the outside. So here's a chart, right? If you look at the chart and you splice it in half, you got six and six. The first category of the first six couple into threes. And you can notice the parallelism of the actions and the attitudes. The sexual immorality, like you didn't just accidentally put your hands on somebody. Like that thing was a seed in your heart before it ever bore fruit of the flesh. So sexual immorality isn't an accident, it's an attitude. It comes out of adultery, that theft comes out of greed, and that murder comes out of malice. No amount of accountability can can heal the human heart. Jesus would have to do that, that's the spirit. Then he moves a little bit deeper into the attitudes of the heart, and you can see how it's every category, of whether it's relationship or stuff or people or time, that the human heart is a factory of idols and a factory of evil. And the only cure for the kingdom of heaven coming is, is, is the soil of the human heart. And so here's what I, I sense is a, is a challenge and an invitation from Jesus for all of us. Is that I, you know, I love 10,000 Reasons by Matt Redman. I love old school worship. I'm trying to get on board with y'all with the new school, you know, worship. But how great is our God by Chris Tomlin, you know. Or the original hymn was probably even better than that. Rooftops by Jesus Culture. I was getting fired up even this morning from 2008. Boy, that's when we did it. Uh, <laughs> My Soul Longs for You. A beautiful name. So well, these are beautiful. Oceans, beautiful music and worship, Jesus is saying that these are great liturgies to guide our heart, right? But our worship is not what's on our lips, it's, it's what's in our heart. Our, our, our worship is our life before people. So what Jesus says is, you actually do know where your heart is. It's, it's, it can be located, and it's, it's where your eyes are. That this, this week, you're going to be in a gym, and you're going to be tempted to look at something that elevates your kingdom above Jesus' kingdom. And your choice to look left or to look straight is your worship. Jesus is counting, right? And it seems like he's saying as far as what we sing on Sundays or what we preach and prophesy about and what we talk about is nowhere close to the power of what happens in the secret place. You will be in your gym and your decision to look left or straight is your worship. It is the only opportunity this side of heaven to give him worship. That's the most expensive place. That's the place that he's asking. We can't redefine what worship means to him. Second place, I think, and this is the intentional question, by the way. Let me put that one up there. Where is your heart? 
Second place, Jesus says our heart is, is, is our money. And, um, and so, you know, I made a joke in first service like, you know, tax season, I feel like we're all a little bit more Republican. And uh, we, want our, we want to keep our money, right? And the whole argument is, even if you're the most Republican person in the room, I want to keep my money because I'm going to use it better than the government. Well, here's the question. Is that true? Are you going to use your money to worship Jesus or worship you? Because if you're going to worship you, it's, you might as well give it to the government. Like money, he says, is the place that the human heart is and is the place of worship. What we say when no one else is around in the quiet moments of our life, the words is the first place James says that we can see our heart because out of the heart the, the, the mouth speaks. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.